Greetings, everyone. Welcome to IML Publications for the second of an eight-part podcast for Jacqueline Gay Wally's collectible collection of Venus as She Ages, a group of six novels that will be under our IML Publications imprint. I'm I. Murphy Lewis, the president of IML Publications, speaking to you from Paris, France, with my guest of honor, Jacqueline Gay Wally, formerly known under her pen name, Gay Wally, who is an award-winning novelist and screenwriter presently with us from New York City. Welcome, Jacqueline Gay. Hi, Murphy. Nice to be here. Good. good. Yay. <laughs> Wish I was there. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Walking through the streets of beautiful Paris. So. I know. I know. So, well, thank you for being here. So today we are going to be discussing Strings Attached about a girl raised solely by her British renegade father, growing to find marriage difficult and knowing nothing of normalcy. Mm. So um, though you had published short stories, this book under the name Gay Wally Mm -hmm. um, was actually your first novel ever. Yes. Published in 1999, right? By the University Press of Mississippi. Yeah, I think it was 1998, but who knows? Yeah. And um, actually, I met you that year. You were, I was oh coming God. to you for editing. Remember, I was, I, our mutual friends, Vicki and Cecilia, told me to go to you to have oh, you wow. edit my memoir. And that's how we began our friendship. So, boy, that's a time. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And you launched this first in what, the West Village. Yeah. Well, the book party was at, at a uh, bookstore. I don't know if it still exists given the coronavirus, but. Three Lives, yeah, yeah. And for this book, um, Gay, you um, were a finalist for the Pirates Alley Faulkner Award, Mm -hmm. the Capricorn Award, Mm -hmm. and the Paris Book Festival Award. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So in this kind of, to me, it's a subtle yet delicate novel. And within this novel, there are two storylines that are woven into what, I consider a seamless narrative, one about a woman's quest for love and the other, the drunken vagabond childhood she endured with her father. Do you want to say anything about that as we begin? Yeah, the the convention of the novel uh, is sort of interesting where the uh, stories of the young girl are told in the third person and the quest of the older woman not older woman, but woman, um, is told in the I voice. Yes. And, um, um, the, the point of the book was to show that how your upbringing can affect your, um, love life in particular in her case, um, as sort of a, she has a boyfriend who wants to marry her and, um, that's a very foreign lifestyle for her and, and frightens her. <laughs> yes. In fact, the, the beginning of the, the prologues incredible. Oh, yeah. Yes. You're saying, um, I quote you, um, <clears throat> I want to know why as I begin this story, I want to call my old lover who does not love me. I want to dial his phone, which he never picks up. He has a whole life separate from me, you know, 
mysterious and wide as the night. And then I want to go to every bar on the Lower East Side and find him, standing tall and surrounded up at the bar, drinking his beer from the bottle. And I want to drag him out, pull his cotton sleeve from a shirt that I know his aunt gave him, pull at the woolen vest he always wears. I want to pull at him. I don't care if his clothes rip. I want to use all my force and just drag him out. He'll go because he'll think they think poor guy, she's crazy. And I don't care. I want to get him out on the street, away from the bar and the glowing people dining together and making promises together and handing at things together. I want to get him alone. Hmm. Well, she wants to, I think she wants to, uh, I think that it ends even a little bit more, um, I think she she wants to hit him, I think, for the way he doesn't move. I think I say softly towards me. Um, yeah, well, uh, you reminded me that uh, the man she falls in love with at the beginning of the book also drinks like her father did. So there's a real uh, interweaving of that. And um, um, so some of that anger she feels towards him is actually misplaced. And um, yeah, yeah. Yes, in fact, we kind of right away after that prologue, we go right into her being in the car with her her father and and Charlie doesn't feel good. He's smoking. I'm sure she's, uh, you know, in part of the book, we find out that she's been um, uh, being received, not really Shirley Temple's, but in fact, spiked Shirley Temple's. So maybe she's a little sick to her stomach from alcohol. So he's driving and they have this great scene, right? Where she's, um, sees a snow plow, but she thinks it's a ship or something coming at them. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he accuses her of being drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. 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 So we've got this, um, um, kind of, dual right of coming back and forth between Peter and the father. Right. Right. But Mm -hmm. I think what is most important in that book or to me is that um, here she has this father, um, her her mother has left and um, she really loves him and, Mm -hmm. um, and he really loves her. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's not really capable of, of bringing her into a normal life. And she kind of dresses that up, that that's okay. It's sort of interesting. And she's, as she gets older, she's almost as bizarre as him. She goes to like fishing bars in a black evening dress. I mean, she, she, uh, (laughs) she sort of, you know, she, and he doesn't really care what she gets up to. I mean, when she's about 13, 14, but she, um, um, but they, they love each other. And I think the book is a lot about, you know, that you can love somebody who's very broken and very, um, and really, um, that, that has a, a long-term effect that you might be inclined to love broken men later. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, but, or have tremendous patience with broken men and, um, and maybe mm-hmm. find them even more interesting in some ways. But, uh, she she has compassion for her father, even if she fights with him and and gets disappointed and and etc. But um, she, I think she said, and challenges him. Yep, 
she challenges him and I, I don't know if it's in strings attached, but, but in a book well, somewhere, um, I think it's in strings attached, you know, he, uh, she wants to bring her friends along to the bars and none of the parents will let their children go. <laughs> and, and he says, well, they're idiots. Those parents We're having a fantastic time. I don't understand what the problem is. And, and in some ways she agrees with her father. So it's sort of, uh, you know, they're, they have a very, um, uh, they're on their unsteady ship together, so to speak. Yeah. It's very symbiotic uh, togetherness, yeah. right? Like yeah. very, um, um, it's endearing actually. It's very endearing. The two of yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, they're very, um, they're close and um, they have no secrets, which is also something I think I say that fathers and daughters can't sleep together. So they have secrets and, um, you know, um, and she's very aware of his, what he's up to. And she doesn't hide anything from him. She doesn't need to because he's almost nonjudgmental about the way she lives, although he speaks all these crazy precepts to her that make no sense given the life they're living. <laughs> I love there's kind of almost a mockery paragraph that you write. Um, I often think that the truth was that my father sold me at a card game. He was losing. Indeed, he lost everything. The men are all sitting around the bar and this card game is a secret, all-consuming vice of my father's. He will do anything to keep in the game. And he says, okay, I've got nothing except my daughter. When she's 18, you can have her. You can take her and do whatever the hell you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, she goes on in that section to sort of say that years later, one of them comes back to get her. He's sort of Clark Gable-ish. And um, I mean, it's her imagination. And um, he comes back to get her and says, well, you, you're you owed to me. And she goes through this whole thing. Does she owe this to her father or does she, should she do it? And she she says, she regrets to say that she gets called to it because this is what she knows. She knows that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So all mm-hmm. her life, she fights being called to that, even though she's now developed enough to know that that's not the ideal lifestyle. Mm. Yes. And she, so she's pulled toward the Clark Gable character. She's been fictitiously sold to, and we can further see into the call, the commitment to her father. In one of the most poignant scenes between Charlie and her father inside a hotel room, having shared the same bed as per usual. So I'm going to quote, I'm just a child. Doesn't he know that he shouldn't tell me that he dreamed he slept with me? Charlie was talking to herself as she got dressed, carelessly, as a child does, as she was to do for years, fast and roughly. She sat on the edge of the unmade double bed that they had shared, waiting, waiting the long while for him to shave, for him to walk from the bathroom to where his clothes were, for him to put them on. She sat there kicking her legs. The room had all the curtains closed. It had no decorations, a television. She sat there listening to him. Odd, isn't it? He repeated. She was trying to remember the chain of events that got them into this hotel room. Was there a snowstorm last night and he couldn't drive? There was nothing wrong, she said to herself, in a father and daughter sleeping in the same bed. She looked down at her body and it seemed very small to her. 
very small and naked, even though she had her clothes on. Did her father want to sleep with her? Why not? She was very nice company. Everybody remarked on that. Dreams come in forms. She herself dreams that the Nazis captured her and tortured her father, not her. She has to watch. That's the worst torture they can give her. She pulled up her ankle socks. Elastics never last. You can't blame him. Anybody can dream anything. Yes. What a scene. Yeah, I was just thinking about this. This moment kind of borders on the form of incest. It reeks of something dirty. There has been a dream of him having sex with her, right? So she feel we feel this kind of uncanny shift, mm-hmm. really, as she's stepping from this veil between being a girl and a woman mm-hmm. and living within the unspoken with a father without mother. Yeah. Um, uh, for those listening, it, this is not a book about actual incest. There is no actual incest, but because she has replaced the mother, the mother has left and she is his sidekick. And as she gets older, she's going out to dinner with him and uh, they travel together. And, um, and um, there is an underlying uh, romance between them. And um, they're quite open with each other. As you can see, he tells her that, which maybe some fathers wouldn't even do. Um, and she tells him things, but that moment is that she knows that somehow the relationship is not what it is not healthy in some way. She doesn't understand what it is. She's quite small in that scene. Um, and she doesn't, it shows just a child's knowing. I think a child does know when something's not right. He's a lot better than her mother who's left and seemingly doesn't care for her. Um, but to her, she, she's a lot better to her, but, um, she senses that they're playing with a bit of fire, Mm. maybe not necessarily sexual, but she senses that perhaps you could say, I mean, the book is called strings attached, that something is being forged between them that she's going to have to live with the rest of her life. Mm. Oh, that's a great way to say it. And the Mm. book even ends with her looking for him, Mm. you know? Yes. And it's, it's interesting too. this. There's a, another scene where she wants connection and she's this loss of the mother has placed her in this, in trying to get closer to her and her father trying to get her closer. They they're in Montreal near the mother Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she's at a Catholic school and there's a moment where she's drawn back to Mother Power, who is a nun at the school. And I think this name is such a wonderful metaphor of mm-hmm. the want of the Mother Power that she's lost. And mm-hmm. um, there's a great scene where she's come to the school at Christmas, come back to the school to find her. Mm-hmm. Charlie, it was Mother Power. That was her name. And she was head of the school. Charlie smiled. She loved Mother Power. It was Charlie who painted the school gift cards, the offerings to her. Charlie who tutored the young girls if their parents were running short on money. Charlie who offered to room with Marilyn, a girl with a hoarse voice and cerebral palsy that might tarnish the busily cool. Mother Power had only to suggest, is that you? 
Her tired, clear eyes smiled through John Lennon glasses. Charlie smiled dumbly. Dumbo's found a home. Come outside and talk. Only Mother Power would leave Christmas Eve mass to talk to Charlie. Charlie followed those rustling skirts obediently as if called out of class. It was Charlie's red face that lit up the crowd of girls when a theft was reported, but Charlie hadn't stolen anything, and Mother Power knew it. The chapel doors closed and they were in the echoing marble hallway. It was very simple. You know how simple it can be. All Mother Power had to do was turn Charlie's face up to her, hold her tight chin in her hand, and look kindly into Charlie's face. And with that, all hell broke loose. Nothing hurt as excruciatingly much. Don't look at me, Charlie turned her head. Why not? You're a lovely girl, Charlie. And Mother Power roughly grabbed her chin again, jerked it toward her as if Charlie were a difficult animal. I'm going to cry if you do that. Good. No, no, Charlie pulled back. Don't make me do that. Charlie, let me look at you. Charlie's eyes were closed. It hurts when you look at me. Why should it? Anyway, you are the one who once told me spells can be broken. Yes. So that sort of echoes her knowing that something's been wrong in her childhood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And echoes that need of connection, of being seen in a way where she hadn't been by the mother, correct? Mm -hmm. And also, I think, you know, that's sort of the concept of the romance is a spell, you know, and um, hmm. she's been under that spell with her father and now she's older and she's starting to pay the cost. Yes. Mm -hmm. Of being alone because the part of the spell is her father's solitude and solitary life that he brings her into with him. And as they sort of go from bar to bar and they go away and they, they're, they're alone together. Father doesn't sort of have normal friends and, mm. and um, he's kind of, brought her into that, the, the um, intimacy of that. And he sort of rewired her brain to almost be like that. So she's now a solitary character. So there she is on Christmas Eve by herself mm. on the streets of Montreal. And she takes herself back to where, as you say, she, she had felt some feeling of home. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and there's a, another just little short scene that I would love to share about how you, um, how this aloneness takes you on a drive. Mm -hmm. Now, I too love to drive alone. I am great company to myself when I drive alone. Old friends come to realizations. The dead return as bards on lawn chairs. Lovers find each other and me with movie-like conviction. All this happens just as the sun is setting a red sky, and I take my hands off the steering wheel and clap in delight. So positive am I that love and mystery will come to me. I feel young, beautiful, the world is promising, and the feeling is so strong that people passing by in the red or black Camaros and Monte Carlos smile at me as if they too are sure it will all come to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, you're, that's very, that's, you're very right. That's she's, she's, she's on her own now and she's living in her imagination as her father has lived in his imagination. And, uh, 
Um, yes. And she's also, the thing about the book, it's not that it's a sad, it's sad in some ways, but it's also their relationship is kind of warm and, um, hmm. and upbeat and, um, mostly. And, um, so she has that in her nature. She, she can be optimistic and, um, yes. and, um, so, but she is by herself in a car, just driving mm. as he would be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then there's this other connection that she's constantly trying to make in her, let's say kind of twenties and thirties with this man, Peter, that she falls in love with at the seaside. Mm-hmm. And um, they uh, keep attempting, right. They attempt to, um, let's say dance together. <laughs> and in fact, there's a great scene, Miss Gay Wally and your strings attached that you write, do you want to go dancing or something? Peter said, he spread his elbows out along the table, pushing for more room against the den of the other diners. Everyone's chairs in this restaurant were pressed closely together, one against the other. Are you crazy? She said, why would I feel like dancing? He had left his house in Gloucester to visit her in Boston. You know, to cheer yourself up. It wouldn't cheer me up. The answer isn't always to run from everything. Hey, leave your gun in your pocket. Don't jump at me. I thought it might cheer you up. What might cheer me up is some quiet talking, some connecting, not moving around a crazy, noisy bar room. She felt herself clamp inside. His thinness, his continual shuffling and reshuffling of himself made him seem weak, incapable. She couldn't talk to him. She couldn't smile and tell him about herself. She could deliver information, hard edge, quickly. Here it is. But she could not play, stretch herself out like a caterpillar on the table with all the time in the world for them both to be delighted by. Not the kind of man to rebuild herself with. I need time to myself, she said. I need time to grieve. Why don't you grieve with me? I'm here, steady, waiting to receive you. She looked at him. I think I have to do it alone. I think one grieves alone. Whoever said that? Lean on me, for God's sake. I need you to lean on me. How? You're a moving target. She put her hands through her hair. Mm -hmm. One of the things about that scene, that's right after her father dies. So she is in a lot of grief. She's she's just lost her her buddy mm-hmm. and um and i think there's a scene in the book where the father says to her after i'm gone you'll have no one and mm-hmm. it almost sounds like a curse mm-hmm. and um but uh yes she doesn't know how to relate properly and that's that's in a way the theme of the book in a sense because the sort of indirect language she has with her father because he drinks too much and he's on the run in his own strange way, maybe, maybe in some ways good, some ways bad. Um, but there's no real dealing with reality. So she doesn't really know how to. And the once he dies, she has to find out how to. Mm. And um, Peter, who loves her, unfortunately has to deal with the, what's left of her childhood, which is a kind of defiance. And, uh, as you're putting a kind of, uh, feeling that she, be- she belongs alone. Mm. 
She's mm. been called to it. Yes. And and there's that great scene where Peter comes home from work and to your New York apartment. And uh, mm-hmm. he said, the smell of home cooking. Don't start, I say. He hands me long stem roses. They are lovely, but I am confused. You are not seeing me do this. I feel defeated, captured at the stove, yet quietly lulled by the textures, the hissing of the cooking foods. You see, he says, you don't lose brain cells doing something domestic in a home. I stiffen. Well, I have other things to do besides shop for food, you know. I agree, I agree, he says. So why don't you let me help you? I can support you so you work part-time, pursue some of the things you want to. No, I jump. You need your money for your own interest. I look suspiciously at him. I am not meant for this. I have been a male companion, a hard driving man myself. I cannot start cooking and being financially dependent, even if it could help me to learn new skills, ease possibly into a gentler life. Yeah, she's very frightened of the normal life. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Frightened. And, and then he and, has, uh, oh, go ahead, please. No. Go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. No, go I ahead. just was thinking that that mantra he has, I want to see my wife mantra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, because they do get married. Um, oh, although she has no gift for it. Um, the uh, he's a stubborn man. But uh, the uh, um, something you were saying. Um, yeah, and then there's a whole question, you know, of, of somebody whose mother has left. So, um, she doesn't really know much about, you know, uh, she hasn't seen a normal situation. So she, and she's aware of it. So she's yeah. defiant. She doesn't say simply, I don't know what I'm doing. She just acts like I don't need to know this, you know, <laughs> she's prideful. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and and she's even doing this wild thing. She's just finished reading about legs diamond and his girlfriend, Kiki. And she writes, or you write, Wally writes, Kiki was dark and agile and quick like Charlie, and she too had been willing to go down, down with a man who counted in only himself. But Kiki was valiant and somehow kept her own shape and anals around the lucky legs. In her honor, Charlie had taken to wearing fake diamond earrings, black satin evening dresses. She was celebrating gangster malls, she told friends. She picked up another hors d'oeuvre and sipped her Long Island iced tea. Mm. Yeah, that's also after her father dies. That's how she mourns him by becoming a gun mall <laughs> in her own mind. I, I'm not sure what that means, but but uh, um, but um, yeah, yeah. Mm. So she's full of life, I think. Yes. Full of life. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And then it leads her this this life of having gone bar to bar with her fa- her father and then honoring him bar to bar. Mm-hmm. It leads her into confessions with um a group of alcoholics. She writes or you write again. Yesterday I looked out over a sea of gray shipwrecked people. I tapped the microphone in front of me and the sound reverberated through the large room. Nobody seemed to move in response. Were they asleep? I was supposed to speak about my drinking. I saw the audience as hostile. My dress must have been too much color. My hair had been too cheerful. They seemed to have just got off the Pequod. (laughs) All the characters, right, of the Pequod. Yeah, yeah. Well, that leads to sort of um, 
something else because of her father's drinking and they go by the sea together and they have this relationship that's very alone together in a certain way mm-hmm. um, that uh, there's a sort of dreamlike quality to the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. that's why I use in the third person, I, I do the childhood with the father and then the adult is in the first person where she's awake now. She's come out of the dream. And um, but she um, there's a kind of um, there's a feeling of motion. They're on a ship together. And so she's coming off this boat now to real life. And um, so, you know, she looks out at these recovering alcoholics and sees them as coming off the Pequod themselves. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You, and your final paragraph, she was alone and focused, driven wild inside rushing as she went ruthlessly, blindly, eternally toward what she loved. She didn't know it in words, but it was a journey she would make forever the rest of her life. There was no ending to it. Right. And there was that enthusiasm, right? Yeah. And that's the, um, well, I mean, all of us, or many of us, love our fathers in that way, mm-hmm. um, and there, there's a journey towards them in some way. That mm-hmm. scene is actually her going to the airport to meet him as a little girl. Um, but, but it in in this book, the theme is really that what has happened in the past is happening in the present. You know, yes, all the time. Yes. So, yes. Um, I think that was really what I was trying to show in these two mm-hmm. parallel stories, the falling in love with Peter and what happens with Peter and then her childhood with her father. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm going to just wrap it up here. So Jacqueline Gay Wally, your daring prose style allows the reader to get close to Charlie's rough, but endearing story. So books lead us, whether we're writing them or reading them, Writers guide us into places we've never been before, internally and even externally, or back into moments we'd rather not peer into, but must if we're going to shift or at least attempt to change. Jacqueline Gay Wally, your character, Little Miss Charlie, brings us down into the depths of her experiences of abandonment from the mother of her father's alcoholism, into the act of love with the character Peter, even if it means their wounds thwart them at every turn and into the exploration of the death of her own father, the man who features most in her life. Thank you, Jacqueline Gaywally, for writing this book, which spans a capsule of time in your youth in the late 60s and moments into your 30s. Thank you, too, for being with us with IML Publications and the launch of this collection, Venus As She Ages. It is pertinent and relevant for all girls, women, and the men who understand them. Well, thank Mm. you. It's Mm. a joy to be joy to be working with you yeah thank you pure joy yes that's this is i murphy lewis of imo publications speaking to you from paris with our guest jacqueline gay wally in new york city about the republication of strings attached to all those in the audience we thank you for joining us we welcome you to listen to our next podcast that will feature the other five jacqueline gay wally's novels you can access more about Miss Wally on her website, www.gaywally.com, or on ours at www.imlpublications.com. 
This podcast was recorded on Zencaster with producer Sebastiano Tecchio and with the music provided for us by Steve Slagle, Going Home. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye.